You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, The Admiral Benbow, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our Quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, Crimson Davy Thunder, and Felony Melanie. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. On the evening of August 24th, 1695, five men in New York City entered a dockside tavern owned by Mr. Michael Hawden. Dr. Robert Brandenham, Henry Mead, John Weir, Samuel Bradley, and Captain William Kidd. These five men were all friends. They formed something of a clique in New York. They were all old sea dogs, except for Samuel Bradley, who was Kidd's 21-year-old brother-in-law. Henry Mead and John Weir hailed from the Carolina colony and served together on a number of voyages. They were something of a team by this point. They came as a package deal when they signed up. They'd just returned from a trading voyage to Nassau, on which Henry Meade served as the captain and John Weir as his first mate. Don't let their destination fool you, though. Meade and Weir were on the up-and-up, well, as much as colonial sailors who sailed between New York, Carolina, and Nassau could be. There was definitely a bit of smuggling and bribery in their story, but they weren't pirates. Robert Brandenham was a barber-surgeon who worked out of New York but spent most of his time at sea. And, of course, William Kidd was William Kidd. The men arrived at Hawden's Tavern to finalize the details of their upcoming voyage. 
Henry Meade was going to serve as the ship's master, or the first mate. John Weir would be the master's mate. Brandon Ham would be the doctor, and Kidd was captain. Everything was just about ready to set sail. Mr. Hawden personally brought over their drinks. He didn't need to overhear their conversation to know their business. Hawden already knew all about the voyage. Everybody knew about the voyage. The men invited Mr. Hawden to sit down and share a round, which was natural. He was not in the habit of doing things like carrying drinks himself. He came over to say hello. They chatted for a while, but naturally the conversation turned back toward the voyage. They were still short just a few men. They had enough, but a few more couldn't hurt. He had a servant, Saunders Douglas, who was fourteen years old, who had been indentured to him since he was just a little boy. William Kidd agreed to take the fourteen-year-old on. He would pay Mr. Hawden half of the wages earned, and Saunders would get nothing. He was indentured, you don't pay indentured servants, but it would count toward his release. So Mr. Hawden brought young Saunders over and explained the situation. The boy was a bit nervous. He'd never been to sea before. The men around the table all laughed and told him all about how much fun it would be. The seasickness, the awful rations, they told him that by the end of the voyage he would have icicles in his beard. This was a boy who could not yet grow a beard. They laughed at Saunders, but eventually he sat down and they bought him a drink. This is episode 247, Weary of Ill Success. Two years later, at the end of May 1697, William Kidd looked down at Saunders Douglas lying on the beach of Mohia Island. Saunders wasn't moving. Blood seeped out of his open mouth. His eyes stared straight at the sun. Saunders was sixteen years old, but he was never going to reach seventeen. Saunders Douglas was the first crewman to perish from the disease that was tearing through the ranks of the adventure galley. Most of the crew was sick, though. They were languishing in the shade of nearby trees, moaning for Dr. Brandenham. The doctor's mate, Armand Viola, was sick as well, so Brandon Ham alone was caring for over 100 men. He really couldn't do too much. There was blood and excrement pouring out of the men. But Brandon Ham distributed the drugs that eased the pain. However, most of what was in his medicine chest was either a narcotic, or came from a school of medicine that still believed in humors. He didn't have anything to cure their illness. A few of the men who were still healthy picked up Saunders Douglas. They put him in a boat and rowed him out to sea. One of them would have pulled a knife and pierced Saunders Douglas's lungs so he wouldn't float when they dumped him out into the ocean. Sometime later, Captain Kidd discovered that his brother-in-law, Samuel Bradley, and his good friend and first mate, Henry Meade, were both sick as well. Now Samuel pulled through, but Henry Meade did not. He died, horribly, with his partner John Weir looking on. We don't have any evidence that suggests that these two men were in a romantic relationship, but... 
when two men chose to abjure things like home and a family, when they chose to sail the world together as partners, they were usually partners. So John Weir was losing a close personal friend and perhaps his love. John Weir might have been the first man to bury one of the dead rather than dump them in the ocean. It was more time-consuming, but John Weir did it nonetheless. Benjamin Franks, the jeweler from New York, was also sick and still weak from his bout with scurvy. He wasn't in good shape. Most of the crew wasn't in good shape. Captain Kidd was in despair here. He was losing his friends and his comrades, which was no doubt terrible, but he was losing his crew as well. And that did not bode well. And it wasn't just concern for his voyage. I mean, we should remember that if he failed in his voyage, William Kidd would rot in a debtor's prison in London until he died. But more than that, those who survived were in serious danger of not being able to get home. Eventually, though, most of the sick men pulled through. It was a slim majority, though. Forty of the one hundred men who fell ill succumbed to the disease. Once the crew was back at work, careening the adventure galley, sails appeared on the horizon. They were headed right for Mohia, right for the adventure galley, but it clearly wasn't a very big ship. In fact, it was tiny. It was a pinnace, they realized once it got close enough, little more than an open boat. And when that pinnace arrived... Eight men climbed out onto the beach. Well, seven men and a boy. They were obviously sailors, all of them sun-dark and comfortable, on their craft, so they were shown to Captain Kidd. As it turned out, they wanted to join up with him. They were led by a man named Nicholas Churchill, and that's a name worth remembering. Nicholas Churchill. We will be seeing a lot more of him in the future. Churchill told Captain Kidd that they were deserters from Captain John Clark's East India Merchantmen. They'd stolen this pinnace and made away in the night to join up with Captain Kidd, but it was more of an escape. They blamed Clark's cruel treatment of the crew and the harsh conditions on his ship. That's an argument that I do not doubt at all. These men were probably right to run away from John Clark. So Kidd took them in, despite the anger that he knew doing so would cause Captain Clark. It's not like he was in a position to turn anyone away at this point. As Benjamin Franks recalled it, and he was clear that he was sick at the time, so his memory might be poor, but he said that there were, quote, four Englishmen, one English boy, two Frenchmen, and a black. The Frenchmen were known pirates who may or may not have been among the French pirates that sailed with Henry Every and Thomas II two years prior. There's at least a reasonably good chance that they were. The black in question probably wasn't actually black, at least not in the modern sense of the word. He was from what Ben Franks called Ceylon or Ceylon, that's an old colonial name for Sri Lanka, an island off the southeast coast of India 
that at this point in our story was virtually completely under Dutch control. So, Ventura Rosaire was his name, could have been black, I suppose, you know, a slave imported by a Dutch East India Company officer, but he was probably Sinhalese, a native of Sri Lanka. Of course, from Sri Lanka, he could have been from any of a number of other Indian ethnicities, or he could have been Javanese or Indonesian or from China. There were a lot of folks in Sri Lanka from all around the region. Whatever the case, though, William Kidd was in luck. He hired Ventura Rosaire, and actually paid him, as far as I can tell, to be his personal cook. One way or another, this New Yorker, this Scotsman, was finally going to taste a little spice in his food. And aren't these names great this week? We've got Armand Viola and Ventura Rosaire, just great names all around. Now, seven men who knew their business and one boy were, you know, that's great, in addition to the crew, but they couldn't come close to replacing 40 lost crewmen. The bosun on board the Loyal Russell, a man named Hugh Parrott, and that's another name you should remember, Hugh Parrott, he tells us that Kidd ensured that none of the crew of the Loyal Russell were permitted to leave, at least not until they were done careening the adventure galley. They had all of his guns, after all. But there was tension on board the Loyal Russell. Apparently, some of his crew wanted to leave, either to jump ship or to take their ship and run. They were stuck here in a place of sickness and dying. So why not get out of there? But some of the crew of the Loyal Russell including Hugh Parrott, wanted to stay with Captain Kidd. And you know, since I've shined such a light on my doubts about the true origins of the Loyal Russell, and since I told you to remember Hugh Parrott, it's probably worth time to give you Parrott's personal account of his voyage thus far. Under oath, a few years later, Parrott said, quote, My lord, in the year 1695, in the month of October, I sailed out of Plymouth in a merchantman, bound for Cork in Ireland, there to take in provisions, thence to the island of Barbados, and in sight of the island of Barbados, I was taken by a French privateer and carried to Martinique, and thence, coming in a transport ship, I was brought to Barbados. There I shipped myself in a vessel bound for Newfoundland, and thence to Madeira. And then I went to Madagascar, and there I stayed for some short time after, and came in company with Captain Kidd. And then the commander and I had a falling out, and so I went ashore at that island, and understanding that Captain Kidd had a commission from the king, I came aboard Captain Kidd's ship, and ever since have been with him. End quote. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now that quote doesn't really shed any light on the true nature of the Loyal Russell. In fact, although Parrot was a crewman of the Loyal Russell, he makes it sound like he wasn't. But there are a few things worthy of note there. Parrot says that he had a falling out with his commander, when in fact he had a pretty brutal fight with his commander on the beach of Mohia Island. We don't actually know what it was about, it could have been over money or women or any of a dozen other things, but we can make some guesses based on what's about to happen to the crew of the Loyal Russell. When the adventure galley was about ready to sail, all but twelve crewmen from the Loyal Russell left her in favor of Captain Kidd. That was between ten and fifteen more men for Captain Kidd. Much later on, Hugh Parrott's entire legal defense was built around the fact that Captain Kidd had a commission from the king. To him and the other men who left the Loyal Russell, sailing with a man with that commission seemed like a much safer option. Hugh Parrott also continually parroted, he does say it a bunch, but he keeps referring to the fact that he never ever disobeyed his captain, and since his captain had a commission from the king, he saw it as though he was obeying the king, serving the kingdom of England. Once the adventure galley was ready to sail, and she had taken her guns back from the loyal Russell, Kidd told them to leave once and for all, and to not follow him around anymore. And Loyal Russell did, this time, return to Madagascar. Although she never quite made it, the ship was wrecked about nine miles off the coast. However, those twelve men did make their way to St. Augustine Island and would, some time later, engage in some piracy. Nothing too grand, but we will see them again. Personally, I think they were pirates from the start, now, whether they were a ship from New York that had sailed with Kid from the beginning, as I suggested last time, or if they were just some pirates with a sloop from Madagascar, it really doesn't matter at this point. The dispute between Hugh Parrott and his captain does. See, all of those men who were once members of Captain Kid's crew that were put on trial later called themselves privateers. And they were, even if they did occasionally stray over the line into piracy. And as we've seen time and time again on this show, most pirates preferred to have some kind of letter of mark at their disposal. 
Now, those were almost never legitimate or legal, but they wanted to make at least a shadow of a defense. Thus far, in our overall story, Henry Every is the only major aberration in that. It seems to me that the men who abandoned the loyal Russell wanted to hide behind a letter of mark, and those who did not, those who continued on with the loyal Russell, well, they probably thought that the privateering restrictions put down by Captain Kidd and his backers were too harsh. They wanted to do some piracy, not some pirate hunting. So whatever the true nature of the So whatever the true nature of the loyal Russell really was, it ended the same way and I think for the same reasons. Finally, with nearly 20 men to replace his lost 40, Captain Kidd and the adventure galley departed Mohia. And you know I didn't even talk about the swindling that went on there, did I? The people of Mohia, who we introduced last time, just fleeced the English through and through. They sold them goods at exorbitant rates, and half the time those goods were half bad. If they sold a sack of grain or a crate of fruit, oftentimes the bottom half would be filled with rotten produce, and if they sold meat it was usually just on the verge of going rancid. The causes of the disease that ripped through the crew were Almost certainly natural causes, but it's not out of the question that bad meat was at least part of the problem. Now, had the crew not been, you know, dying, they probably would have done something about this injustice on Mohia Island. But as it was, they were in no case to retaliate. And when the locals were questioned about the bad foodstuffs, whoever they happened to be questioning, had just conveniently never heard of the scoundrel that sold that rotten food. Who? Never heard of him. Don't worry, if we'll see him, we'll execute him. It was a scheme from the beginning. But the biggest problem that this gave Captain Kidd was that they took basically the last of his money. The stopover on Mohia had taken much longer than expected. They were running short on food supplies. And since they had yet to take any kind of a prize, they didn't have any money to resupply. Adventure Galley sailed back to Johanna, and Kid wanted to buy food, but he would have to do so on credit. And the locals weren't going to extend him any credit because he wasn't with the East India Company. They were happy to do that for East India Company ships, and Kid did try to use his commission from the king to levy credit on the king's behalf, but they weren't interested. So here, William Kidd was a bit desperate, and he did something that I think is very significant. Kidd took out a loan from those two French pirates. Now, those two men had enough ready money to supply the entire adventure galley. That's... hmm... It's almost as though those two French pirates were sitting on a pile of plunder from some rich haul that they'd taken in the past. Perhaps from, you know, a Mughal ship. Maybe at Bab el-Mandeb, the strait at the mouth of the Red Sea. Who's to say? We don't know where they got the money to make this loan. And all of this is just speculation. There's no evidence that these two French pirates had ever been part of any legendary pirate cruises to the Red Sea. 
So Captain Kidd sailed immediately to the mouth of the Red Sea, guided by these two pirates. That's not a joke, that's what they did. As soon as Captain Kidd had his supplies in hand, he sailed up the eastern coast of Africa, past Mozambique and then Ethiopia round the Horn, and finally to the mouth of the Red Sea, at the Babs. Exactly the same place that Henry Avery and his fleet had laid in wait for the Mughal Pilgrim fleet. Now, the question, the question, is this. Was William Kidd sailing to the Red Sea to rob Muslim pilgrims, or was he going there to hunt pirates? And everybody has a different take on this. There are so many passages I've read, and I'm going to share a few of them with you. The first I'll share comes from The Pirate Hunter by Richard Zacks. He writes, quote, Captain Kidd's motives for choosing to go to the Red Sea would later be called into question. Kidd, who was not the kind of leader to go blathering to his underlings, clearly told two members of his inner circle, jeweler Franks and brother-in-law Bradley, that he planned to attack pirates. End quote. Zacks goes on to argue that that was always Kidd's real intention, attacking pirates, his mandate. But his point of evidence here are the words of two of Kidd's closest allies. Can you trust two men who are so close to Kidd, one of them literally family? Maybe you can, or maybe not. But Richard Zacks here in The Pirate Hunter is definitely sympathetic toward his main character. He takes a strong position on one side of this question, and that's bold, brave, even. And he might be right, but many of those other authors disagree. Robert C. Ritchie takes the opposite view in Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates. He quotes two of Kidd's other crewmen, though not members of the inner circle, which is what Zax is arguing against when he says that Kidd was not a leader to go blathering to the crew. The first of these crewmen that Ritchie quotes said that Kidd planned to, quote, make his voyage, and that he would ballast his ship with gold and silver. The other, and this is a famous line, said that Captain Kidd said, quote, Come, boys, I will make money enough out of that fleet. Another version of that line reads, quote, We have been unsuccessful hitherto. But courage, my boys, we shall make our fortunes out of that fleet. Now, it's worth mentioning what fleet he means there. And I hate to spoil what's going to happen, because it's one of the big events of pirate history. But it's critical to understanding this question. William Kidd is talking about the Mocha fleet, a Mughal pilgrim fleet. And he is going to attack such a fleet just like Henry Avery did in just a few days' time. Which makes the defense of his actions curious, especially since William Kidd, in his own defense, doesn't even mention this act. Robert C. Ritchie goes on to say, quote, When Kidd rounded the horn and turned due west into the Gulf of Aden, he was all but announcing he had turned pirate. He could still argue that he was there to look for pirates, 
but his actions would quickly undermine that excuse. End quote. So Ritchie holds the opposite view. And I could go on like this all day. I've read a ton of paragraphs about this question. I could tell you what Angus Constum thinks, or David Cordingly, or any of the other historians who have written pirate history. They all talk about this moment. And eventually I will. The sources on Captain Kidd really begin to pick up steam at this point in his story. Everyone has a take on what's going to happen. And I will say this, the older histories all see Kidd as a vile criminal and a villain from the start, but newer histories tend to take a more measured view on this question. And I could also tell you what I think, and of course I will, at length I'm sure, but I'm going to save that for later. For now, I'd like to leave you today with the thoughts of the godfather of pirate historians. In A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, Captain Charles Johnson writes, quote, We cannot account for this sudden change in conduct, otherwise than by supposing that he first meant well while he had hopes of making his fortune by taking of pirates. But now, weary of ill success and fearing lest his owners, out of humor at their great expenses, should dismiss him and he should want employment and be marked out as an unlucky man. Rather, I say, then run the hazard of poverty, he resolved to do his business one way, since he could not do it another. Next time, William Kidd turns pirate. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make this possible, so thank you. This show is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. To check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, go to airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight